speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 29 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and on this episode, I am going to head into season two of The Adventures of Superman. Season two brought on several changes for the show. First and foremost, the show moved to California Studios, which is nowadays known as Rally Studios, directly across the street from the Paramount Studios on Melrose Avenue. There are also some changes in the show's management, as Whitney Ellsworth, who was the editorial director at the time at DC Comics, took over as producer from Robert Maxwell. The sponsor, Kellogg Serial, wanted the show to be a little less violent and uh, more kid-friendly. As I have spoken of, and I've spoken of with Bob Fisher during the course of our coverage of Season 1, the show's first season was very much a crime, noir, drama, and mystery. And some of the episodes, specifically The Evil Three and Night of Terror and some others, probably weren't the most suitable for children, as one would expect a superhero show to be. And when those episodes were produced, the show didn't have a sponsor. Kellogg's didn't agree to sponsor the show until later on. And they exercised some of their clout with... The production of season two. And actually, the second season is kind of a transition. The show would become more of an out-and-out kids show in the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth seasons with the onset of the color episodes. But this season is a nice blend of what we saw in season one and what we'll see later. Despite being black and white, some of these episodes are more like the color episodes of the later seasons than they are of season one. This season also brought about the debut of Noel Neal as Lois Lane in the series. As many of you know, Noel Neal had previously played the role of Lois Lane in the movie serials with Kirk Allen, Superman the Serial in 1948, and Adam Man vs. Superman in 1950. And there were some rumblings that Phyllis Coates would not come back to the role. One of the things I had heard basically after the two-year window, she had taken another job and was unavailable. So the producers went to something familiar, and they gave Noel Neal a call, and... I mean, I got a clip right here of Noel Neal talking about how she got the job on the DVD special feature called The First Lady of Metropolis. So I got this phone call. I said, Noel, I said, yes. And he said, well, this is Mr. Aylesworth from New York. You want to do Lois Lane again? And they said, I'd love to. So it was just kind of that simple because they knew that I had done the series, serials with Kirk Allen. And uh, so uh, it was very quick, and I just went to work. Both Phyllis Coates and... Noel Neal played the role of Lois Lane differently. In season one, Lois was much more of a hard-bitten newswoman. You know, very tough and no-nonsense and always took Clark to task for just about anything. Very competitive and very hard woman. Noel Neal would bring a lot more warmth to the role of Lois Lane, and I'm going to comment on this later. I think she smiled more in her first episode, Five Minutes to Doom, than Phyllis Coates did all of season one. It also, in season two, you're going to see the cast become more of a tight-knit group, and uh, it really seems as though Noel Neal is the glue holding that together. And it also changes uh, the way Jimmy is portrayed, and let's hear uh, J- 
Jack Larson talk a little bit about that. When we came back to do the 53 season, Noel Neal lightened uh, uh, Lois Lane considerably. Jimmy also lightened. And uh, I got to do tons of comedy. Jack Larson would speak later on that he really loved playing the comedy bits that he got to play as Jimmy during the course of the second through six seasons. Noel Neal was accepted by the cast right away. And there's a great story she tells about the way George Reeves really went to bat for her during her first day on the job. Everybody was very nice to me. I had a little trouble at the beginning of the, uh, the first day I worked for them. I was supposed to say, Thanks, Superman. I, we're very grateful. And I just couldn't get enough oomph into it, but uh, George, bless his heart, he said, uh, can we have a 15-minute break? And the director said, sure, George. And uh, so we got the director over, and he said, you know, please, you'll be a little easy on the kid. This is her first day with a new family. So then we went back, and then I fortunately did it right for him. I mean, you can really see it as these episodes go on in the second season. This is when the cast really started to gel. You know, and I don't want to obviously put down any work that Phyllis Coates did, but the cast really became one unit starting with season two. Season one had a lot of episodes where you only saw Lois and Clark in this episode. You only saw Perry and Jimmy in this episode. Obviously, you see George Reeves in every episode, and Robert Shane as Inspector Henderson kind of comes and goes as he's needed. But the cast was often split up. And Take a look, look at episodes like... The Evil Three and the Riddle of the Chinese Jade, which I did in episode 26. Jack Larson and John Hamilton, as Jimmy Olsen and Perry White, factored heavily into that episode with no appearance from Phyllis Coates at all, and barely any participation by George Reeves, really, except for the scenes where he was needed. While The Riddle of the Chinese Jade featured heavily Lois and Clark with no trace of Jimmy and Perry. That will change as we get into the later seasons of this show, as the cast becomes more of a true ensemble. So, with that said, I'm going to take a quick break, I'm going to play a promo, and then I'm going to move into the first episode of Season 2, Five Minutes to Doom. Hang around, folks. Okay, and we're recording. You ready, Bizarro? Bizarro, I'm unready. Okay, let's do this. Hi, my name's Mario Benessi, and I host a show called Up, Up, and Away. And me and Bizarro, we protect the city by destroying it. And we're here to tell you about a very special event coming to the Up, Up, and Away podcast this September. Bet I'm wrong, Mario. During the month of September, comic coverage will feature stories exclusively featuring Bizarro. Me and feel so hated. So be sure to check out the Up, Up, and Away podcast. We're available through Podomatic and iTunes, as well as through Facebook. You know listen to podcasts. It am terrible. You am going to hate it. Exclusively on Up, Up, and Away. Because it's about time I dedicated a month to one of my favorite Superman villains. Uh... No offense, Bizarro. Lots taken. Alright, welcome back, folks. And we're going to head right into Five Minutes to Doom. Writer was Monroe Manning. Director was Tommy Carr. Guest cast included Debs Greer as Joe Winters. Lois Hall as Mrs. Winters. Louis L. Russell as W.T. Wayne, John Kellogg as Turk, Dale Van Sickle as Baker, Sam Flint as The Warden, Gene Wiles as Marion Cummings, William E. Green as The Governor, and Kim Charney as Billy Winters. Now for our synopsis, brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com. Former county building inspector Joe Winters is on death row for killing a superintendent named Baker. 
Winters claims to be innocent of the crime, and the Daily Planet is offering $10,000 to his family for the exclusive on the events leading up to the murder. Well, Mr. Winters, my name is Clark Kent. This is Miss Lane. We're with the Metropolis Daily Planet. More reporters? Do you want to know what it feels like to have less than a day to live? We're reporters, but that's not what we came to see you about. We have a proposition to offer. What kind of a proposition? Won't you sit down? Well, for the first time in its history, the planet will pay $10,000 to be given to your wife and child for the exclusive story on the events leading up to the crime. You know, I pleaded innocent, don't you? You were tried and convicted. Now we want the real story for our readers. But I can't. $10,000. To be given to your wife. It's a deal. Good. Well, the morning of the fight, I was the field office early. Let's see, this was on the 19th. Yes. I asked the foreman where Baker was, and he said he was in the checker's office. Wait a minute. It was brought out at the trial. The foreman didn't see you that morning. Oh? Well, I forgot. I, I guess it wasn't the foreman. It was the timekeeper. Well, anyway, I, I went into the office to wait for Baker, and after a while he came in, we went over to inspect the upright forms. We were going to... Hold it. Witnesses testified you came out of that office by yourself. Oh. Well, I, I mean that I... It's no use. What do you mean? I can't confess to something I didn't do. I didn't kill Baker. Here we go again. Look, do you think I don't want that 10000 for my wife and kid? Do you think I wouldn't do anything to get it? Then why don't you tell us? Because I don't know who killed Baker or how he did it, that's why. Come on, Clark, we're wasting our time. I don't think so, Lois. Now look, Joe, why don't you tell us your story? The true story. What good would it do? Well, you never know. Go ahead. Well, as you know, I was a county building inspector on the Metropolis Depot overpass. Contractor was W.T. Wayne. He's one of the biggest in the business. Baker was the superintendent on the job. And he and I had some trouble. It all started because he wouldn't wait for my inspections before pouring the cement. One day, I... Many who had been working on the site had witnessed their conflict. Baker, I told you I wanted to see that steel reinforcement today. I can't wait around for you county inspectors every time I'm ready to pour. You'll wait for my inspection and I'll order all that cement torn out. Oh, get out of here, Joe. You're making me mad. Look, I'm warning you. I won't stand for you bypassing me like this. The next time it happens, I'll, I'll close the job down until it is inspected. And stay out. For the next time, I won't be so gentle. A few days later, Winters wanted to put a gauge on some steel reinforcements, but Baker had poured cement on them the night before, thereby preventing Winters from looking things over. Listen, Baker, I've had enough of this runaround. Why don't you run along, little boy? I'm busy. I'll run along all right. I'll run right to the county office and get this job stopped cold. Get away from that phone. Look, you don't scare me, Baker. Something fishy's going on around here, and I'm going to find out about it. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
on my gun with one bullet fired tossed behind some tools. I didn't fire that gun and I didn't hide it. What do you think happened, Joe? I think they were using a cheap substandard grade of steel on the job. You mean Wayne, the contractor? If he could get away with it, it'd mean a fortune to him. I told you you wouldn't believe me. You think he was trying to kill you and shot Baker by mistake? He shot Baker. He framed me for the murder. See, in that way, he got rid of both of us, the man who was doing his dirty work and the guy who knew about it. Did a perfect job. Still, Winters claimed to be an innocent man, even though he is hours away from going to the electric chair. Clark believes that Joe Winters did not kill Baker. Just the same, Clark. I don't know why you're so positive Winters is innocent. Very simple, Lois. You remember I had a hold of his wrist? Well, I was taking his pulse, and all during his story, it was firm and steady. So? So, do you know how a lie detector works? Well, it just measures the heartbeats and their reactions. Don't tell me you think you're a human lie detector. Not exactly. Cut it out. Only Superman could do a thing like that. A man who had visited another prisoner while Lois and Clark were speaking with Winters has just called W.T. Wayne. Fearing the two reporters will learn the truth before Winters goes to the chair, Wayne calls someone to help him with his next sinister objective, eliminating Lois and Clark. Lois and Clark have picked up a hitchhiker who had left behind his lunchbox after being dropped off. Lois notices that the man didn't take it with him. This prompts Clark to have a closer look with his x-ray vision, and he finds that there is a bomb inside. Desperate, Clark tells Lois to drive faster as he jumps out of the car with the package in hand. He is, of course, uninjured, but the explosion destroyed his reporter's clothes, and, and the Superman costume underneath is now exposed. Clark, are you all right? Sure, I'm all right, Lois. Oh, would you toss me down that trench coat that's on the seat of the car? I can't very well come up the way I am. Here we go. Catch! Thanks, Lois. I'm sure glad I had this with me. Clark, I want you to know I think that's one of the bravest things I've ever seen. You mean it's something you'd only expect Superman to do? Well, yes. Lois, sometimes I think you underestimate me. Daily Planet editor Perry White has approved an investigation into Joe Winters' innocence and W.T. Wayne's activities. Well, that's about the most improbable story I ever heard. But, Chief, I'm certain that Winters was telling the truth. And remember, he wanted that $10,000 for his family. All he had to do to get it was to admit he was the killer. Yes, it makes sense. Well, somebody thought it was the truth. Otherwise, why would they try and stop Lois and me with a bomb? You're right. Okay, get on it. But remember, this is a mighty tricky proposition. W.T. Wayne is a big man in this town, has a lot of influence. If you make any mistakes, we can end up with a million-dollar libel suit. I know, Chief, but a man's life is at stake. An innocent man. Just be sure you can prove he's innocent. And Kent. Sir. If I can help, I'd like to. Thanks, Chief. There is something you can do. Will you contact the steel companies and try and find out what type of steel that Wayne bought for that job? It'd be a great help. I'll do it right away. Thanks. And Jimmy, you and I'll go over the shack where the murder was committed and try and find out what we can. Lois? You go to the state building and get me the exact specification of the steel to be used in that overpass. Right. We'll get back here as soon as we can or keep in touch by phone. Good. Clark and cub reporter Jimmy Olsen are in the construction shack where Baker had been killed. According to the coroner's report, the bullet had struck Baker from behind. This leads Jimmy to discover an area in a storage unit with the door that leads outside the building. Hey, Mr. Kent. Look here. Oh, yes. It's rigged that way, Jim, so the workmen can get up the tools without coming inside the shack. Yeah, but don't you see a man could have come I in? I know what you're trying to say. Someone could have come in, fired a shot, and gone out the same way. Cully, then maybe Joe Winters didn't kill Baker, and Mr. Wayne did. Then all we've got to do is prove it before Winters gets the chair. Come on. Right. As the clock ticks closer to the hour of Winters' execution, the Daily Planet staff is looking over documents showing the types of steel that W.T. Wayne had used to construct the overpass. 
Yes? That's it? Thank you. Thank you very much. There's a complete list of the steel Wayne ordered for the overpass. Good. And here are the specifications for that steel. According to the contracts, those sizes and qualities were to be used in the job. Now we're getting somewhere. Are we? Of course we are! Can't you understand what Kent's driving at? It's like this, Jim. If Wayne put cheap steel in the overpass, and if he filed false inspection reports, and if we can prove all this, then we have enough evidence for a new trial for Winters. That sounds like a lot of ifs to me. Hmm. I'm going to examine the inspection reports Wayne filed with the county clerk. Lois, do you suppose you could get an interview with Wayne? You bet I can. I want to know what his reaction will be when he hears an investigation of the construction of the overpass might be coming up. Well, you be careful, young woman. If Wayne is involved, just remember somebody tried to dynamite you earlier today. This is the very middle of a big city. It's bright daylight, and I'm a big girl. Chief, I'll go with Miss Lane. I won't let anything happen to her. And don't call me Chief, you young whippersnapper! Lois was able to enter W.T. Wayne's office. Why should the planet be interested in the amount of steel I bought for the overpass? Now, I don't want your opinions, I want facts. Find out what this is all about and do it fast. Well? Uh, Miss Lane to see you from the Daily Planet. Well, tell her I'm busy. Tell everybody I'm busy. Young lady, I... I didn't mind be kept waiting at all, Mr. Wayne, so you needn't apologize. Well, that's very nice of you, I'm sure. But you'll excuse me now, I, I'm a very busy man. I know you are, but you wouldn't be too busy to discuss a possible investigation of the construction on the New Depot overpass, would you? Investigation? What in heaven's name for? Probably nothing to it. There seems to be rumors that cheap substandard steel was used in the reinforcement. That's a lie. Then why not let the planet print some of the inspection reports? That should settle the whole matter. Well, I can't. I, uh, I haven't got them. Uh, we didn't keep them. They were destroyed. I see. It would only clutter up the files having all these papers here. That's too bad, isn't it? You're mistaken, Mr. Wayne. We didn't destroy those reports. Here they are. These are not the inspection sheets from the overpass. They're from a different deal. And don't tell me I'm mistaken again. If I could just see... I've had enough of this. There are no reports to be seen, and I have no more time to waste. Is that the only statement you wish to make? It is. Good day. It's getting late. Good night, Mr. Wayne. When I want anything from you, I'll ask for it. But you were lying. Why? What I do is no concern of yours. Mr. Wayne, I've been with you for six years, and during that time I've seen you pull some pretty strange deals. Business deals? Well, sharp deals, let's say. But when it comes to using substandard materials in a building project... Those are lies, Miss Cummings. The structure might collapse. People would be killed. That would be murder, Mr. Wayne. You use that word very easily. You're young and you're healthy. Take my advice and remain that way. When Lois's direct approach failed, Jimmy got an idea. I'm sorry, I told you, you can't Good come day, here. Good day, Mr. Wayne. I'm James Olson of the Little Giant Vacuum Cleaner Company. Glad to meet you. I'm prepared to offer you, absolutely free of charge, an amazing demonstration of our sensational machine. The Little Giant sweeps, cleans, buffs, polishes without fuss or bother. Listen to the hum of that motor. A powerful, two-phase, double-reciprocating electrical monster! What do you mean? Don't you thank hear? me yet, Mr. Wayne. Wait until you see with your own eyes the magic of the little giant. What a sloppy ashtray! I must have had it in the wrong end. 
Meanwhile, Clark is in the county courthouse looking at reports signed by Joe Winters. However, well, it's about time you got here. You should have seen the thousands of reports I had to wade through. I could have used Superman. Jimmy, go down to the lab and tell them I'm in a big hurry for these prints, will you? Yeah. Any luck? Yes, I found a whole bunch of reports, all filed together and all signed by Winters. How about you? Not bad. Take a look for yourself. Say, where did you get these? From Wayne, but not with his cooperation. Mm -hmm. Lois, the pieces are really beginning to fit together. These are Winner's original reports, definitely stating that the steel used is substandard. Here's your first picture. Thank you, Jimmy. Look at this. These are the reports filed by Wayne and supposedly signed by Winters. Obvious forgeries. Then Winters was telling the truth. And Wayne is probably the real killer. There's one way to clinch it, Lois. Get the district attorney's office on the phone and ask him to do some more work in the fingerprints on the murder gun. But the testimony at the trial said the only prints on the gun were Winters. Yes, but that was only on the gun. Sometimes people make mistakes. Ask them to get the prints on the bullets in the gun. Could be just that. Not that phone, Lois. We've got to try and get through the governor. Now get me the governor's mansion in State City in Russia. Winters will be going to the chair in an hour, and he may be an innocent man. Yes? What? Oh, no. What is it? This storm is worse upstate. All the wires are down between here and State City. Well, I'm going to try and get through to the government myself. We've got to get that reprieve. You can't possibly get to State City in an hour. I can try. This has become truly a job for Superman, as the Man of Steel flies at tremendous speed to get a reprieve for Winters. Superman! Quick, Governor, I have evidence that Joe Winters is not guilty. Not guilty? What proof have you? You'll have to take my word, sir. Your word is good enough for me, Superman. With the paper in hand, Superman arrives just as the switch on the electric chair is thrown. His invulnerable arm stops it from going down completely, and the flow of power is stopped so Winters can be freed. I'm sorry I destroyed your wall, Warden, but here's a reprieve for Winters. And time was getting a little close. Take Winters back to his cell. And thanks, Superman. And another thing, how did Superman happen to take over when you could never have made it? Well, I really don't know, Lois, but I suppose he's been interested in this case right along. Well, the important thing is that an innocent man was saved and that a guilty one was caught. Cully, you were right about those bullets, Mr. Kent. They were covered with Mr. Wayne's fingerprints. And a secretary talked plenty. I wonder how a real smart man like Mr. Wayne could turn out to be so stupid. Perhaps he wasn't so smart, Jim. You know, I bet you if I'd really tried, I could have sold in that vacuum cleaner. <laughs> oh, good old Jimmy. Nice to see him getting the last word in an episode for a change, and that it's not always George Reeves. All right, so I like this episode a lot. This is a good start to season two. It introduces us to Noel Neal in a very good way, and all around, like I said, it's a strong start to season two. Now, for those of us, who, for those of you who are paying attention, you will remember Dabs Greer from Superman on Earth. He was the man hanging from the rope on the blimp, which showed basically Superman's first rescue in the series. So, there that is. I believe this will be Dabs Greer's last appearance on the series. He more famously played Re Reverend Robert Alden on Little House on the Prairie for those of you who enjoyed that show. 
Now, this season also brought a couple of other changes other than what I discussed in the opening. Season 1, the title of the episode was basically over an S-Shield title card. Now, the title of the episode is on top of the opening shot of the episode. In this case, it's an establishing shot of the prison. I'll miss the old title cards, but the way they're doing it here will remain until late in the color seasons. I don't know if it's season 5 or 6 where they'll basically do away with the episode titles completely. Well, they'll still name the shows, but they won't show you the title at the beginning of the episode, starting, like I said, either season 5 or 6. That's for later. We start off with Joe Winters talking to his family, you know. He is scheduled for execution. His wife is standing by him and is understandably upset that her husband is going to go to the electric chair in about 24 hours. This viewing actually was the first time that I really noticed that now, Winters is played by the same man who hung from the rope in Superman on Earth. Up until now, I just kind of watched these shows and not really paid a whole lot of attention to the actors, at least the guest cast. I mean, obviously, there were a few that stand out, like John Eldridge from Crime Wave. He was also in The Girl Who Hired Superman, a color episode. He makes an appearance later in this season. I don't remember which episode it is off the top of my head. And he'll also appear in Superman's Wife. Also guys like Richard Reeves, who was Bad Luck Brannigan in Season 1. He'll be in The Big Freeze. So, you know, some of these guys you'll recognize from repeat appearances. But Dabs Greer doesn't really have any uh, defining features that will really make you remember him. But either way, though, he does a good job. And this is our first look at Noel Neal as Lois Lane. Basically what's going on here is that the planet is willing to pay $10,000 to Winters' family for the real story of what happened. And by this point, Winters is a beaten man. And he is willing to go so far as to make up a story just so his family will get the $10,000 after he's gone. To many of us listening today, $10,000 may not sound like a ton of money, but rest assured, back then it was. Lois is very quick to believe the court's conviction, and really doesn't believe that Winters is an innocent man. But you can see that Winters' confessions do not match with what was revealed in court, and you can see he's making up a story kind of on the fly, so his family gets the money. Eventually, Clark just tells him to tell his story. And there's a neat shot, you see it several times, but Clark will have his fingers on Winters' wrist, feeling for a pulse, and... I've seen enough Superman comics before I watched this episode that I knew exactly what he was doing. I've seen Superman repeatedly listen to pulse beats to tell whether someone is telling the truth. It is done in the comics. It'll be done at least once in Lois and Clark, and, and all for the same purpose, to find out whether someone is lying or not. Now, the episode goes to what I believe is the first time this show has gone to a flashback. Might even be the only time, but I'm not sure. Just because I can't think of any other instances of the show using a flashback doesn't mean it won't happen again, but... Like I said, I can't remember any other instances right now. Winters apparently threatened to shut down the construction job Baker was working on, and, you know, Baker's had to fight with him and throws him out and threatens him. I love the look from George Reeves here as he's listening to Winters' story. His eyes are piercing, and it shows the focus that he's putting on Winters' words. And all this time, Clark's hand does not move. And these flashbacks show Baker as the aggressor, as he has thrown punches at Winters in both instances. Baker is handling himself well, and the two men are choking each other out, and somebody shoots Baker from what to me looked like the back. So, Winters points them to another man, the Project 
contractor, W.T. Wayne, who he claims is using substandard steel on the construction job. So, there's a lot of early exposition in this episode. And apparently Winters doesn't ha didn't have a very good lawyer when he was in court, and he didn't do a very good job defending him. Apparently Winters said he had no proof that he didn't do it. Well, in a criminal trial, however, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. So, I don't understand why Winters couldn't find a lawyer that believed him and was willing to fight for him. And I also wonder how long ago all this happened. Winters is already facing execution. Were there no appeals or anything? I mean, normally it takes years to get someone from trial to execution. I don't know. Maybe things work faster in the 1950s. And then all of a sudden we get a shot of these two guys who are kind of down the row from Winters. Who are they? And why are they important? And apparently, as we find out in the next scene, one of these guys calls in to W.T. Wayne, and apparently Wayne, for all his prominence in the Metropolis community that Perry White will allude to later, he doesn't know who Lois Lane and Clark Kent are. Ah, well. And now we see Wayne go under his desk and pull out the secret phone. Because, I guess in the 1950s, you hide a secret phone underneath your desk. The secret phone is for secret jobs, and Wayne calls this basement dweller who must be a hitman of some kind. Now, Lois still doesn't believe a word Clark is saying, and I like how she doesn't buy a story about keeping tabs on of Winters' pulse. She says only Superman can do that, and this is the beginning of what is going to be constant with Noel Neal's version of Lois. She will constantly, throughout the rest of the series, try to prove that Clark is Superman, and this is just the first time we see her trying to connect the dots. She'll spend, like I said, almost the rest of the series trying to do it. Now, of course, Lois and Clark pick up their hitchhiker, and we recognize him as the basement dweller, and he leaves his little lunchbox on the seat behind them when he gets out of the car. And judging from the information Wayne gave us when he called his hitman, the car Lois is driving is supposed to be blue. And not that we can tell, this episode is in black and white, so I'm wondering why they kind of went out of their way to tell us that Lois' car is blue. Lois here is showing that she's pretty observant, and she noticed that the hitchhiker brought a lunchbox and didn't leave with it. Meanwhile, Clark is all kinds of distracted because he's thinking of ways to help winners, and he's not paying attention to a thing going on around him. So, but when Lois mentions it, he checks the, uh, the back seat with a lunchbox, and he sees it there, and he uses his x-ray vision on it. And we get a new x-ray vision effect this season as the camera closes in on Clark's eyes, and then they superimpose a shot of the box, and the top kind of disappears, so we can see what Clark is seeing, you know, this all indicates that he's looking through the through the box still. Perfect this shot in the color episodes, but we're not quite there yet. And, well, there's the bomb, and Clark is going to act quickly. He grabs the lunch pail and rolls down a hill, and it explodes on him, absolutely destroying his clothes and revealing the Superman costume underneath. Well, Apparently he makes Lois think the bomb blew his shirt off or something, and she's smiling when he asks for a trench coat. And so far, you know, I think we've seen Noel Neal smile more than we've seen Phyllis Coates do in all of Season 1. And now, the exchange here between Lois and Clark sounds a little bit staged, at least in the first part of the scene where they're not on camera together. He's calling down from the bottom of the hill and she's throwing him the trench coat. I don't know, just something about the early part of this scene that sounds staged. And I don't know when these scenes were filmed. Once they're on camera together, their chemistry gets a little bit better. Now, I don't know when these particular scenes were filmed, but it could be possible they are still getting used to working together at this point, and they're just trying to kind of find their chemistry a little bit. Lois and Clark have a different dynamic this season than last. They were rivals in season one, where Lois was always trying to beat him out of the story, or she was challenging Clark's thoughts on how they should proceed. Ghost Wolf is a good example, where every time Clark wanted to do something, Lois kind of stood in his way. 
But I'm getting the feeling from what I'm seeing of the relationship here between Lois and Clark, George Reeves, and Noel Neal, that they're friends here. And that's really, to me, the way it should be. I, I never quite understood the rivalry between Lois and Clark. I mean, they both work for the same paper. They should be working together or working on separate stuff. A newspaper really would not waste its two best reporters competing for the same story. They would be doing separate stories or they'd be working together. The Lois beating Clark to the story just doesn't ring true to me as somebody who works in the newspaper industry. When they get back to the car, Clark comments that what he did is something she would expect Superman to do, which kind of harkens back to her comment that only Superman can be a human lie detector. They're back at the planet, apparently on the way home, on the way back to the planet, Lois must have dropped Clark off at his apartment so he could get a new suit. And here's where we get our first, second season look at Jack Larson as Jimmy Olsen. No big change here, he's still wearing the same outfit that he wore for season one. Except his hair is a little bit shorter, and he has a crew cut now. And also, if you listen closely to the scene where they divvy up the work to prove that Win Winters is innocent, you'll hear Clark call him Jimmy. Ordinarily, that's not that big a deal. But during the first season, Clark almost always called him Jim. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that Clark calls him Jimmy. And he will continue to call him Jimmy through the rest of the show. In the first season, only Lois was calling him Jimmy. But now, the rest of the cast is moving on moving on to calling him Jimmy as opposed to Jim. Except for Perry, who is going to continue to call him Olsen for Young Whippersnapper or something like that. And Perry offers to help, and that's nice of him. It's even funnier seeing Clark giving Perry orders, but... Clark is definitely the quarterback on this assignment. He's kind of calling the shots. Clark and Jimmy go to the shack where Baker was murdered, and Jimmy finds a trap door in the toolbox, which indicates that someone could have gotten in, shot Baker, and escaped. And now they're off to the races, trying to prove that Winters is not guilty. Now, here are some of my dime store legal counsel. You can take this for whatever it's worth. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't even play one on TV. But from what I saw in the flashback, Baker got shot in the back. If Winters told his story in court and said he was in front of Baker, then how did he shoot him in the back? I guess the prosecution must have just kind of assumed he was lying and moved on. Like I said, Joe did not have a very good attorney. On this episode shows uh, that they're racing up against the clock by every once in a while they'll show Winters looking apprehensively at a clock on the wall. They only have, a, at this point, they only have about 11 hours and 25 minutes to clear Winters' name. So, Jimmy questions their progress, and Perry screams at him. And Jimmy's still a little disbelieving, but this is another great scene in Perry's office, and this time Jimmy has been kind of pawned off on Lois as they go to see Mr. Wayne. And apparently with Jimmy, there's a bit of a reversal here. Now, Lois is calling him Jim, at least for this scene. So now we meet Mr. Wayne. He Well, we've already met Mr. Wayne. We're seeing him again, and he's not happy about the Daily Planet looking into the steal. And Lois just barges in here despite Wayne's protests. Now, for all the talk about how Lois's character has changed with the addition of Noel Neal in the cast. Well, it has not changed here, and she's just barging right in. She's showing here that she is just as good a reporter as Clark is, and she is clearly putting Wayne on the defensive. Meanwhile, the receptionist, Miss Cummings, is being helpful. Helpful to Lois, not necessarily to Wayne. And she clearly doesn't know what's going on. At least it doesn't seem that way to me. And she's showing that she has a bit of a conscience and is threatened by Wayne. And then in the next scene that we see, it's quite windy there for some reason. This is going to set up something that we're going to see later. So either way, Wayne threw away the inspection report that, that Cummings handed to him, and Jimmy has a plan to get it. And now it's 3.38 p.m., and Winters' time is clearly running short. Now here is the first bit of comedy we'll see of Jack Larson, as Jimmy is pretending to sell Wayne a vacuum cleaner. And Wayne clearly doesn't want him doesn't want the vacuum. He doesn't want Jimmy's trying to sell it to him, and 
is just an hysterical scene. And Jimmy is pretty good at this. Great physical comedy <laughs> as he blows some ash all over Wayne and then threw a trash can at him and eventually vacuumed up the paper before Wayne unplugs the vacuum. This is a great bit, and we're going to see more stuff like this as the show goes on. Now, time is continuing to tick away on the planet staff. Clark is at the Hall of Records at 6 p.m. approaches. Now we're back at Perry's office, and if you look outside in the background, you can see that it's storming out there, and that's going to come into play later. And as it's raining outside, the Daily Planet staff is piecing together Wayne's report, and Clark calls it an obvious forgery, but I'm kind of not sure how it's obvious to him. And then Clark at the Hall of Records found a report signed by Winters, and the report from Wayne's office shows Winters wrote a report saying that the steel was substandard. And Jimmy brings back a picture. And I'm not exactly sure why Wayne left the incriminating report in his office, but he did. And that's going to lead to his downfall, and it's going to lead to Winters being exonerated. And the storm finally has an effect on the event of the episode, as it knocked out the phone lines. And, ooh, I wonder how Clark is going to get to the state capitol in an hour. Well... Obviously, he changes into Superman and takes off off the springboard, and that really wasn't the best Superman takeoff that we've seen, but it gets the job done, and Superman is off to the Capitol as Joe is getting marched to the chair. Now, here's the governor getting ready for bed in his ugly checkered bathrobe. Oh, thank the Lord this isn't in color. This kind of reminds me of Jimmy's lumberjack outfit from The Ghost Wolf. And <laughs> I guess the wind just blew the window open long enough to let Superman in. If this were a villain's hideout, it wouldn't open at all, and Superman would just crash through it, kind of the way he did uh, Luigi Dinelli's skylight during Zara of the Underworld. Superman flies in, and the governor just takes his word for it without proof that Joe Winters is innocent. It's a good thing. I don't know if they would necessarily take Superman's word for it now, but I guess they're not exonerating him and letting him out of jail, but they're just giving him a stay of execution. I guess the legal process will have to work things out and to find out whether Winters is truly not guilty. Now, there's a nice use of shadows here to show Winters being strapped to the electric chair. After that, you get to see Superman flying back from left to right on your screen. As you know, normally when he's going somewhere, he flies from right to left. The warden pulls the switch, and I love the effect of Superman coming through the wall with the shadow on it, and then sticks his arm under the switch, sending animated electricity all over, shorting out the chair and saving Winters' life. This is one of my favorite moments in the show, as Superman just gets there in the nick of time to stop the electricity. And, you know, as Superman's standing there with his arm underneath the switch, the warden's just standing there. He doesn't look surprised at all. You would think he'd at least, you know, kind of look at Superman and wonder what's going on, but no, he just stands there and kind of lets everything run its course. But at least after it was all said and done, Superman apologized for flying through the wall. And then the warden thanked him. Again, he just accepted Superman's apology for breaking the wall, and now, now we get back to the planet. And Lois is, of course, questioning how Superman took over for Clark right when he couldn't do it, and Clark implies that you know, Superman might have been interested in the case all along, and he came over and took the ball when nobody else could. And this time, Jimmy gets the last word of the episode, and I love that they're giving this final line to someone other than George Reeves once in a while now. Saying that if he really tried, he could have sold Wayne the vacuum cleaner. You know, and I love the physical comedy on, on the part of Jack Larson, how he goes from happy to kind of shaking his head, questioning what he said, and then kind of shrugging it off. Just, Jack Larson is very good, or Jack rather was very good, at physical comedy, and watching him play Jimmy the way he is, is just great. It doesn't get any better than this. Jack Larson is, in my opinion, the best Jimmy Olsen that has ever been in live action. Hands down. And this is a pretty good start to season two. Season two is not going to have, you know, kind of classic episode after classic episode like season one will, because there are some episodes that are kind of rough. I am certainly not looking forward to when we get to the, the dog who knew Superman. 
Maybe I'll enjoy it more than I have in the past. I don't know, but right now, I'm enjoying what we're getting in Season 2, so. But right now, I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a promo, and then I'm going to come back with The Big Squeeze. Hang around, folks. It's time for some thrilling heroics. A brand new podcast on 2TrueFreaks.com. Keep flying. A Firefly podcast. We aim to do the impossible. Cover every episode of Joss Whedon's science fiction space opera western. And that makes us mighty. We found as fine a crew as ever populated the podcasting verse. I told them I had a job. They said yes. Didn't much care what it was. So join me, Andrew Leyland. I fought for the independence. May have been the losing side. Not so sure it was the wrong one. I'm joined by a man too pretty to die, Mr. Paul Spataro. And last, but by no means least, a man with a mighty fine hat, Shepherd Bill Robinson. So join us on 2TrueFreaks.com for Keep Flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to misbehave. Alright, welcome back folks. And we're going to head right into The Big Squeeze. This episode was written by David Chandler and directed by Tommy Carr. Guest cast included Hugh Beaumont as Dan Grayson, Aline Town as Peg Grayson, Brad Morrow as Tim Grayson, John Kellogg as Luke Maynard, Ted Ryan as Al, Harry Cheshire as Mr. Foster, and Reed Howes as the policeman. Now for our synopsis brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Dan Grayson is a respected employee of the Metropolis Furriers Incorporated, who has done so much for the community. His boss, Mr. Foster, has given Grayson much praise as Clark Kent shows him the trophy meant for the Daily Planet Citizens of the Year Award, an honor the newspaper intends to give to Grayson. Dan Grayson is in first storage in which he has worked for the past ten years when he receives a mysterious telephone call. Hello. Grayson? Yeah. Dan Grayson? Yeah? Who's this? Just an old friend of yours, Dan. A real old friend. Look, uh, either say who you are or I'll... Don't bother to hang up. I'll do it. I've got all I want to know. As Clark and Mr. Foster are about to go talk to Dan, the emergency alarm for the storage vault goes off. Grayson was distracted by Maynard's phone call and accidentally locked himself inside the safe. Seeing that no assistance could possibly arrive before the moth-killing gas does its job on Grayson, Clark becomes Superman and the Man of Steel rips the door from its hinges to free him. Foster has sent Dan home early after the vault incident. He's about to tell his wife, Peg, and son Tim about his day when the doorbell rings. Well, Danny boy. Luke Maynard. In the flesh. So you were the one. The man on the telephone. One and the same, Danny boy. Have some walnuts. No, thanks. What do you want? You know, when a guy's in prison, he thinks of a lot of things. Some guys, it's horses, others... It was 15 years ago. I put it out of my mind. Out of a lot of other people's minds, too, huh? Get to the point. You remember Blackie Harris? Blackie Harris? Sure, he was one of your old cellmates. Been going straight a long time. Sends me 20 bucks a week. And uh, Tom Tom Riley, the embezzler, he sends me 15. Why should they pay you anything? Why should they pay me anything? The same reason you're going to pay. I wouldn't pay you and wooden nickels. It's a kind of insurance against people learning you're an ex-con. Because if they do... Listen, Luke. 
Get out of here and stay out. You'll see it my way. Maybe I'll have to open your eyes a little. You'll see. A day or two has passed since Maynard's visit, and the Daily Planet staff is making preparations for their Citizen of the Year award. Meanwhile, Maynard has come to talk to Grayson at the Metropolis Furriers. Who let you in here? Your boss. He said I should come right up, so I come right up. Nice guy. Too bad if he found out. Okay, look, you win. But I can't pay you anything for a couple of weeks. I say, if you'll give me a couple of weeks, I... I'm going to give you a break, Dan. You don't have to pay like the other guys. All you have to do is a little favor. There's no such thing as a little favor for you. That's all. All you have to do is help me heist some of these skins. The furs? Are you crazy? There's a little cafe around the corner. Meet me there tomorrow. Lunch. We'll talk. How about it? Well, I've... I'll think it over. That's a good boy. Think hard. And fast. Worse yet, Dan's son Tim, who overheard the conversation between his father and Maynard, overheard him blackmailing Dan, and the boy believes that his, this revelation could ruin his dad forever. Tensions between Dan and Tim Grayson are increasing. However, this does not show when Lois Lane and Clark Kent drop by to tell the family that Dan is the Daily Planet Citizen of the Year. Well, Dan, we've got some great news for you. I'm afraid I don't understand. We'll need pictures, interviews, in other words, Mr. Grayson, the story of your whole life. What for? Well, Dan, the Daily Planet has picked you for the Citizen of the Year Award. Oh, Dan, how wonderful. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Kent. You better get yourself another boy. Oh, don't be modest, Dan. Besides, it's too late. The first editions are already on the street with the news. You can't do a thing like that without asking me. My answer is no. I'm sorry, but... Now, if you don't mind. I... Of course, Dan. Some other time. We better go, Clark. Uh, yes, I, I guess we better. Well, good night. Young Tim later comes to Clark's office. Hiya, Tim. I guess you're Mr. Grayson, too, aren't you? Well, what do you want to talk about? I came to ask you not to... Please, Mr. Kent, all those things you're going to print about my daddy, please don't tell everybody that he was in jail. Your daddy was in... Now, Tim... You know I wouldn't do anything to hurt your daddy. You believe that, don't you? Uh, I guess so. So we'll just keep it a secret between the two of us, okay? Okay. That's my boy. Come on. First, Dan Grayson must tell him everything. All right, Mr. Kent, now you've uncovered the skeleton in my closet. Where do we go from here? Well, maybe we better start by you telling me more about it. It's the usual story. Wrong bunch of kids. Borrowed a car one night. It was supposed to belong to one of the kid's brothers. It didn't. I thought it was just for a joyride. It wasn't. It turned out to be for armed burglary. I got three years. Three years. Now I got to pay for it the rest of my life. How do you mean? Blackmail. Guy named Luke Maynard. He wants me to help him get at these furs. So now I gotta go to the police. And then everything comes out, right? No. All comes out wrong. Maybe you won't have to go to the police. I've got no choice. Listen, Dan, the next time this Luke calls you, tell him you're willing to do anything he says. Pretend you'll follow any orders he may give you. Then you get in touch with me right away. Well, we'd still have to ring in the police, wouldn't we? Not if we can ring in Superman. Grayson has given Maynard the key to turn off the furrier's alarm. 
Now all that Dan must do is take care of the vault guard at midnight. Grayson later calls Clark with the details of Maynard's plan, and Clark tells Dan to go straight home after work. Superman has arrived at the Metropolis Furriers, but he is too late. The Night Watchman was injured, and all the furs have been stolen. Dan Grayson's only alibi is that he was wandering around the streets of Metropolis all night. However, everyone, including his own son, is suspicious of him. A fine man you chose for the Citizen of the Year Award, Kent. Our own headline says ex-con question and fur robbery. I know, Chief. I've seen it. I'm sure he had nothing to do with that robbery. <laughs> well, for your information, Mr. Kent, the law isn't going to be interested in what you're sure of. Look, Chief, the man made a mistake years ago, but he's paid his debt to society. And now he's got a fine family, a good reputation, and a fine circle of admiring friends. And now he's being held on suspicion of robbery. Great, but he's innocent. What are we going to do, just walk away from him? Can't you know as well as I do, if an editor takes his finger off the public pulse, he's dead. All right, Chief, but will you hold off just a little while longer? I think Lois and I will pay the Graysons another visit. All right, a little longer. And that means little. Only Lois and Clark believe in Dan, and that doesn't seem to be enough. Hi, Dan. Hello. Your wife told us we could wait for you. Sorry you had to wait. I'm looking for a job. Any luck? What do you think? Oh, everybody was very nice. They all had some excuse. Any excuse except the real one. Dan, where were you last night? That's what the police want to know. They don't like my answer. Why not? Because they don't want to believe I was out just wandering the streets most of the night. Oh, I have to admit, I'm the likeliest suspect in town. I could have done it. They think I uh, locked myself in the vault on purpose just to make sure the door would be broken for a few days. Yeah. There's only one thing to do. That's to find the gilly man. What good will it do? Everybody knows I'm a con. Ex-con. Look, Mr. Kent, let's face it. The way most people feel, once a con, always a con. I just spoke to Inspector Henderson. They've got Luke Maynard at headquarters for questioning. You better get over there. Sit tight, Dan. Getting tired sitting tight. Very tired. Grayson attempts to go after Luke Maynard on his own to prove that he is not a thief. While Metropolis Inspector Bill Henderson questions Lois and Clark, Jimmy Olsen follows Luke Maynard, who was just interrogated by Henderson. Maynard and his partner, Al, are heading for a mountain cave containing of lead deposits that block Superman's X-ray vision. Maynard has hidden the stolen furs there, and little does Maynard realize that Dan Grayson is in the trunk of his car. The once respected member of the community has nothing to lose now, and he's pointing a gun at Maynard in hopes that the racketeer will confess to his crimes. Hold it! Well, if it ain't Danny boy, kind of young to be playing with guns, ain't you? I've got nothing to lose now, Luke. If this rap gets pinned on me, I'm through. You're going to show me where the furs are now, and then we're going to go back and have a little talk with the law. Better show him, Luke. I ain't showing him nothing. That's far enough. Is it? Don't make me shoot, Luke. Shoot? Go ahead. Why'd the car meet me in the cave? You're a sucker, Danny boy. You should have shot me. Maynard has captured Grayson. Plus, Al has discovered that Jimmy had been tailing them. Though he tries not to show it, Luke Maynard is nervous about the possibility of Superman's arrival. He even cracks some walnuts, which brings the Man of Steel to Maynard's cavern hideout. You won't need that anymore. It was Luke's idea, the whole thing. I, was... I know, you just came along for the ride. Well, next time, don't team up with anyone with such a noisy appetite. What do you mean? How'd you find us? Maybe you can't see through lead, but that doesn't mean he can't hear through it. I tried to warn you, Luke. Luke is going to hear from a judge. 
The first have been found, and the true thieves have been captured, thanks to Dan Grayson and Superman. The Daily Planet is about to give their Citizen of the Year award to Dan Grayson. And now it gives me great pleasure to present the Daily Planet Citizen of the Year award to you, Dan Grayson. Well, I... I, I don't know what to say. I, I never thought anything like this could happen to me. And, well, thank you. Thank you all very much. Just a minute, Dan. I'd like to speak to you for a moment, all of you out there in the audience, and especially to a little boy, Tim Grayson. To me, Mom. Tim, I hope you're as proud of your dad today as the rest of us are, because we feel that we have a right to be proud. But there's more to it than that. Dan has certain rights, too. Dan and other men like him who have paid their debt to society and now only ask a chance, a chance to prove themselves, the chance of a lifetime. Let's not make them spend that lifetime in the shadow. Because Dan and other men like him feel that they only want an opportunity to take their place in life, to make their homes, raise their children, make their community a better place to live in. Well, Dan has done all these things. Just because he was a convict once doesn't mean he's any different now. In fact, we think he's something kind of special. How about you, Tim? He's the best. Huh, Mom? The very best, Tim. I'll be right home, Tim. All right, well, this was an okay episode, a nice feel-good episode about somebody seeking some redemption after he made a terrible mistake in his youth. You know, things like arm burglary have consequences, and Grayson paid his consequence, and, you know, he has just as much right to put his life back together as anybody else would. But more on that later. The episode opens with Clark showing Mr. Foster, Grayson's boss, the Citizen of the Year Award. And... Foster has nothing but good things to say about Grayson. He's the best man he's ever known, and apparently Foster has no idea of Grayson's past. Must not have been on the job application. Must not have had to check that little question about whether he's ever been convicted of a crime. And then we meet a phone call from someone who seems to know Grayson from a past life. This is Luke Maynard, so the first thing we're going to see here is that Grayson may be hiding something, and we don't know what it is yet, but we're going to find out shortly that Grayson was in prison for a time. And after the phone call, Grayson shows some absent-mindedness by locking himself in the vault. Apparently, the phone call he received bothered him a great deal, and it distracted him. And there's a part of me that wonders whether Grayson was scared that his secret, being an ex-con, is going to come out, and if he locked himself in the vault, knowing that it would kill him on purpose. But that is never indicated in this episode. That's just my mind going to a place that I'm sure the writers did not. Here's Superman. He comes into the window. I heard some glass shatter, but I didn't see any glass break. So, interesting there. And Superman just unceremoniously rips the door off the vault, and Foster is not bothered by this at all. He's more concerned about Grayson's safety, so he's a pretty good boss. He's not complaining about how much money it's going to cost for him to fix the vault door. I'm sure it would have cost him a lot more to uh, deal with the problem of a dead worker. I guess the situation ended for him about as well as it could. So Grayson says he was distracted, and I love the look on Clark's face when he realizes the problem that had been dealt with. He's trying to explain himself when as he's looking up at the front, at the shattered vault door, pretending he didn't hear. Superman come in. So Foster gets Dan some coffee, and it's, that sounds swell to him. And, you know, I'm glad this was, scene was written in the in the early 1950s because there are very few people left in the world who feel comfortable using that word. Swell. And now Dan gets another visit. This time it's from his uh, mystery caller, who Dan recognized him as Luke Maynard, who apparently wants Grayson to pay him some money to keep him from revealing the secret that 
Grayson is the next convict. I'm personally not a little sure about the timing. Apparently he was arrested 15 years ago. He's been out of prison for at least 10, so he served three years. His son seems a little bit younger than 10, so it's apparent that Grayson was in and out of prison before the boy was born. So I'm guessing he met his wife later on. It's unclear whether she knows the truth about his past. It's never mentioned in the episode, but she doesn't seem too upset about it. So maybe she knew already, I don't know, and they never told the boy. Don't know, so. We got another scene of the Daily Planet staff talking about how great Dan Grayson is these days. I admit it's a rather unorthodox way to meet the citizens of the year, but for my money, Dan's it. He seems to be the model community man. PTA, BSA, and YRC. Parent Teachers Association, Boy Scout work, and what? Youth Recreation Center, Jimmy. It's his own special project. He made it himself, raised the money, and practically built it with his own hands. The finest in the city. Well, <clears throat> now let's dispense with the two courses of he's a jolly good fellow and go to work. Lois, you take care of the background stuff, history of the award, etc. Can't you take care of the pictures, interviews, etc.? Yes, sir. What about me, Chief? You take care of the etc. Yes, sir. What am I so happy about? This is in stark contrast to the scene we just saw where Maynard was trying to extort him with the truth about his criminal past. And, you know, at the end of this scene, Jimmy gets a little victimized by Perry's wit as he assigns Clark to do a few things, etc., get the interviews, etc., Lois does some other things, etc. Well, Perry wants Jimmy to handle the etc. And Jimmy is very excited as he leaves the the office. And then suddenly realizes that he has absolutely nothing to do. More great comedy by Jack Larson. And I'm really going to enjoy, as we go through this season and the color episodes, the comedic talents of Jack Larson. And I think you're going to enjoy them too if you're watching along. And I really hope you are watching these episodes as I get to them. I've mentioned this before. If you're just listening to me and sometimes Bob Fisher ramble on about these things, you're really doing yourself a disservice. Get yourself a hold of these episodes and watch them. I think you'll be glad you did, if you decide to. So anyway, back to the show. And back to Grayson's house. And, you know, his wife knows something is going on as Grayson is being evasive about Maynard. Who is at the door? What's wrong, dear? Well, nothing. Nothing, Craig. Just an old friend. Hi, Tim. Hey, what's the matter? You been fighting with that Baxter kid again? What is this, both of you? What's happened today? Oh, nothing, Peg, nothing. Uh, come here, son. Like I said, it's unclear whether she knows the truth about Grayson or not. I don't know. It could go either way. And we, obviously we saw his, his son Tim listening at the door when Maynard was blackmailing his father. So he just gives his father a glare. And we know that Timmy knows. And let's talk about Grayson's wife for a minute. If she looks familiar to you, that's because you've seen her twice before on this show. She played Lara in Superman on Earth, Superman's mother. And she was also the receptionist in The Human Bomb. The actress's name is Aline Town. And this will be her final appearance on the show. Maynard keeps showing up in an effort to extort Grayson, this time at work, and now he doesn't want just a payment. He wants Dan Grayson to help him steal some of the furs. Payment would have been a lot easier for Grayson to deal with, and that might have just affected family finances. This is going to drag him back into criminality. And Grayson is starting to feel defeated as he, at least at first, kind of agrees to what Maynard is proposing. 
And then we go back to Grayson's house, and the tension at the family home continues to ratchet up. Dan doesn't really know why, and he's trying to do anything he can to engage his son. Brings over a board, and the office plays, plays some checkers, but Timmy turns that down, and I'm betting Dan's heart probably went into his throat when the doorbell rang. You know, he's already had enough uh, bad luck with the doorbell and people knocking at his work door and phone calls, and... But fortunately for him, it's just Lois and Clark with great news, and Lois just absolutely blitzes him. She comes right out and says they need the story of his life, and Dan's probably having a heart attack right about now. His wife is excited about it, but Dan, but Dan turns down the award, much to everyone's surprise, and the fact that she is excited about Dan telling his life story and becoming Citizen of the Year maybe indicates that she doesn't know about Dan's three years in the joint. Did I really just say in the joint? Oh, well. And the planet jumps the gun here, having already printed that Dan Grayson was going to be the man of the year before actually talking to him about it. You don't run a paper announcing something like this until after you talk to the subject, just in case something like this happens. You know, some people are shy, but other people have something to hide. I would have loved to have seen the conversation between Grayson and his wife after Lois and Clark left. So now we go back to the Daily Planet office, and you know what? As somebody who works in newspapers, I'm with Perry. I hate these gimmicks. Chief, it just doesn't figure. That's the trouble with these gimmicks. You're always coming up with someone who wants to play hard to get. Whenever we're in a staff meeting and my boss, who's the president and owner of the company, asks what kind of game or contest we should have to engage the readers, I just kind of throw, throw up in my mouth a little bit. My job is to report the news and get the paper out every week. I can really care less about games to play. I engage the reader by putting quality content in my products, not by playing dumb games. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. This is not a Mike Zumo work complaint podcast, although it could be. And it probably, I'll probably complain more about my job as we go forward, but now, for now, we're going to go back to the episode. We're going to be kind to Dan Grayson and tell his story, and not mine. I really like the performance of George Reeves here, and he does a great job of softening Clark this season, especially as he works with the child actor who plays Timmy Grayson who showed up in Clark's office, and this is where Clark finds out about Grayson's past for the first time, and it has to be real hard for Timmy to know about this, and Clark is showing nothing but empathy toward the child, and he's promising not to do anything that would harm Dan Grayson, and he promises Timmy that he will keep this a secret. So, Clark keeps this a secret by going to talk to Dan Grayson about it, and this is where we learn the story about how Grayson served three years for armed burglary, ba-ba-ba, we get the expositional scene telling us about Grayson's life, but Clark has a plan. Instead of Grayson going to the police, Clark is going to use Superman to solve this problem, because this is a Superman show. This episode really puts into perspective how difficult it is for people who have served time and committed felonies to integrate back into society. It may have been easier to hide these things back in the 50s, but with today's computer records, you really can't run from these things. And, and you know what? Even though it's not supposed to stop someone from hiring a person, if an employer has a choice with all other things being equal, between an ex-con and someone with no criminal record, who are they going to take? Who would you take if you were in that situation? I think we all know the answer to that question. For what it's worth, Grayson has managed to put that behind him and build a good life for himself over the course of a decade. And, you know, he paid his debt to society, and there's no reason for him not to resume his life. But he's still ashamed of his past to the point where like I mentioned, it doesn't appear as though he's told his wife about it. His son definitely hasn't heard about it. And now it's going to come out due to Maynard's blackmail. And as Grayson says, it's going to come out the wrong way. 
the longer you hold a secret, the harder it is to reveal that secret to your loved ones. And their reaction is always unpredictable. You can't always pre predict how someone is going to react to a revelation quite like this. So Clark gives Grayson his instructions, and Grayson gives the key to Maynard, but Maynard also wants Dan to take out the Night Watchman. Dan reports in to Clark, calling from a payphone that only costs 10 cents. You're hard-pressed to find a payphone these days, which kind of leads us to that silly little meme that the world is basically going to hell in a handbasket because Superman has no place to change in a phone booth. Not that Superman changes in phone booths as much as the cliche will have you think. Case in point, over the course of this show, how many phone booth changes have I described? The only one I can think of is from Mechanical Monsters, I want to say, way back in episode one of this podcast. The only other one I could think of is in Superman 4. And, Lo and one in Lois and Clark. We're talking two in live action, one in animation. I haven't watched any of the other Superman animated stuff in years, so maybe there'll be some phone booth changes there that I'm not remembering. Well, anyway, I do find it interesting that when Superman flies into the Furriers, he finds the Watchman has a concussion. And it's always interesting seeing Superman on the phone calling something in. Well, the paper comes out. Ex-convict questioned in first theft. And Perry is not happy, and rightly so. Clark chose this particular man of the year, and now it looks like he's involved in a robbery, so Perry's going to hate this gimmick even more. And But even though Clark is feeling bad about what's happened, Clark is still convinced that Grayson didn't do it. And there's just some great acting in this episode. You know, you can see, after the events of this, you can see when Lois and Clark go visit Dan Grayson at his home that he just seems like he's ready to give up. Clark, again, is showing a great deal of compassion here, and he's willing to kind of do whatever it takes to help him, and, you know, when they get the call to go see Inspector Henderson, Dan makes this comment about how he can't sit tight for much longer, and that comment is kind of troubling. He might want to do something about this. I'm not saying he's going to go back to a life of crime, but he wants to do something to make his situation better, especially after what happens next. Tim comes in depressed because the other kids won't play with him because of who his father is, and like I mentioned, this is hardest on Tim, and you know, it's not Tim's fault who his father is, but it's hard to get people to understand something like that sometimes. I'm sure the other parents were thinking of their own kids, and any kind of influence that, that might come from from that. It's very hard for people to see that someone else has changed. It's even harder for someone to change themselves. Not a lot of acceptance here, as we've seen from the reactions of the other kids not playing with Tim, and from the fact that Dan's out of work at the Furriers, and, well, he can't find a job anywhere else because he's, the truth of his past has come out, and he is not someone that people really want working for them, and you can kind of understand why, especially if he's under investigation. I mean, why would you hire somebody who's under investigation from stealing from another company? Wouldn't make a lot of sense for you to do so. Clark and Lois go see Inspector Henderson, who wants to question them. He just got finished questioning Maynard, and... Here's our first shot of Robert Shane of Season 2, and he doesn't do a whole lot in this episode. Lois and Clark go into his office, and that's the last we see of Robert Shane. And if I'm remembering correctly, we're going to see a lot less of Robert Shane in this uh, in this season than we did in Season 1. I don't know if there was a reason why he was in less of this season, but so we'll start seeing him more again in the color episodes. Grayson is about to do something stupid here, as he is in the back of Maynard's car with a gun. And apparently he wants to clear his name by making a citizen's arrest. And I'm not sure exactly why Grayson dropped the gun and elected to go hand-to-hand -hand with Maynard, but it doesn't work out for him, and he gets himself caught. And this is where we get some exposition from Al, Maynard's henchman, that Jimmy Olsen has followed Grayson to the mountain. Jimmy gets away, and he's going to call a report in to Clark, who is going to try something else, such as stripping in his office. 
Because what do you do if you're super mad that somebody calls you on the phone? You lock the door and you start taking your clothes off right in your office. Because you've got a nice, tight Superman costume underneath. And Dan is expecting Superman. He's expecting Jimmy to call Clark, who's going to get Superman. And there's a very smug look on Dan's face as the Superman's flight music plays. He knows he's not in as much trouble as Maynard thinks he is. And the, the look that Dan is giving Maynard is making the criminal very nervous. And I just love the acting here. And you know what? He go Dan actually goes Maynard into cracking the walnuts, which is what Superman hears and how he finds them in the Leadline Cave. I'm not exactly sure why Superman couldn't hear them talking to each other, but apparently it's the cracking of the walnuts that's going to uh, do him in. We saw him cracking the walnuts right from the first phone call, so Chekhov's gun has now been fired. As a contrast from Season 1, after Superman comes into the cave and apprehends the criminals, you don't see him punch them out. He just kind of catches them, stands there, talks to them, and the scene ends. If this were Season 1, he'd be beating some people up. And this is something that Kellogg's lobbied for. Well, they use their influence as the show's sponsor to tone down some of the violence. It'll start getting toned down here, and it'll become very toned down as we get into the color episodes. This episode has a happy ending with Grayson getting his Citizen of the Year award, and I don't know where they're shooting this, but it looks like Clark's apartment. And then Clark gives the moral of the story that even ex-cons who've served their time should get the opportunity to get past it and build a better life, and, you know, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to. Obviously, the prejudices of people who are doing hiring and the stigma that comes from being an ex-convict I'm sure plays a role in whether some of these people can truly make their lives better, but hopefully the system will go in a way that these people can do that. So, another good episode. Lots of good character stuff here. You know, we haven't always seen Clark as compassionate in Season 1, and George Reeves is definitely getting to extend the character of Clark Kent and Superman in Season 2. Bob and I have talked in the past about how Season 1 showed us a very Golden Age Superman, and Season 2 is when the show starts to move a little bit into the Silver Age. A little bit more kid-friendly than Season 1. And we're going to continue seeing that as this show goes on. Next week, I am going to cover the next two episodes, The Man Who Could Read Minds and Jet Ace. You can send me feedback if you would like to do so. I can be reached at manofscreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation on Facebook, you can find the show's Facebook group by searching for the Man of Screen podcast. The show is also on Twitter. You can find me there at Man of Screencast. And you can find the show and review the show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can find the show in all three of those places. You can leave me reviews in all of those places. Or you can leave me an I or just one or however, whatever you want to do. I'm not picky, but reviews will help others find the show as well. So, until next time, folks, thanks for listening. Have a good one. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.